I am here with Christian Gapol. Christian, you oversee our Relentless Youth Ministry Junior High. And so welcome this morning. Thankful Thank that we get to be here together. We have a couple of things that we want to announce to you. The first one is what we call Rooted and Growing, which is RNG. Mm-hmm. We have it for short. But something with Rooted and Growing is something that we call Disciple Someone. I know even in junior high, when you disciple someone, it's not the easiest thing. No, absolutely not. So give me some ideas on how do you guys disciple? How do you guys like, at least give the good news of Jesus Christ to junior hires? Well, I think the easiest way is you just start with relationship. Mm. You know, when it comes to um, anybody, really, you can tell them as much things as you want, but they're not going to really buy in until they see it. Yeah. And one of the best ways we can show it is through relationship, I believe. Yeah, so if you want to sign up for our newsletter, in fact, that's the way you're going to find out more about our, not just rooted and growing and other things, but specifically disciple someone. What does that look like and how are we going to do that? So sign up to our newsletter. It's going to pop up here on the, the screen on your, actually on your chat. You're going to see a link. Click that and then you can sign up for our newsletter and that will help you. So one thing that we're also doing, and I've been watching a, a, a couple episodes of this thing called, I think it's called the Bible Project mm. on right, right Now Media. Yeah. So Right Now Media is like the Netflix for uh, different Christian conferences, different um, uh, episodes of Wait, so wait, how much things. does it cost to be a part of this Right Now Media, though? Well, if they sign up this way, if they text um, to that number, then they're going to be given an email and access to all of these videos. So there's no cost. Mm. I mean, we there is a cost, but not to you guys. It is absolutely free for you guys. But do you you use right? Have you used right now media? With We've used youth? it a few times for youth, and the okay. best part is that there's different categories for youth, for kids, um, and a lot of times it's really good stuff. So I yeah. would say if you have a bunch of youth or kids, or even if you are bored. You've seen everything in Netflix. Go take a look. There's right. a lot of great Bible studies and different things. Yeah, they even have things for marriages, of course, families. But just take a look. And you can even do a search and search for different categories, and it'll help you. Yeah, a lot of things will pop up. Also, there is um, coming up. I know you guys just started your Instagram accounts, and you guys are doing things with our youth, uh, both Relentless High School and Relentless Junior High. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about Relentless Junior High. What does that look so like? So Relentless Junior High, uh, we have a really fun Instagram account. We do things during the week, and okay. it all ends usually on Fridays when we have an online service. We have activities we play over Zoom. We have um, wow. worship time. We have message, and we just kind of hang out and talk. So we're trying our best to still reach your youth. Yeah. So if you want access to that, um, you can follow us at Relentless Youth Junior High for Junior High. Or you can follow at Relentless Youth High School for high school. And uh, I'm sorry, I was going to ask, how, about how long do you guys stay on? What does that look like as far as time frame? For services, um, high school stays on from 7 to 8 o'clock. Okay. And then junior high is from 6 to 7. So if Thursday nights is high school. Yes. And Friday nights is junior high. Yes. And, uh, of course, high school is with our youth pastor, Pastor Lindsay. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, I think that's part of how we get to learn and grow together in this season because it's been, a, it's been an amazing season, mm-hmm. especially doing things digitally like this. So thank you, Christian, for all that you guys are doing. Anything else you need to share with Relentless or anything going on? Uh, no, but I do want to kind of talk about what we've been going over in the last two weeks. So um, over the last two weeks, we've had our amazing summer digital experience. And in it, 
thousands of families had kids and youth grow in their relationship with Jesus. And they did fun things and everything like that. And even though we can't traditionally meet, even though we can't, um, even though we don't have what we normally have, quote unquote, God is still great. And we still were able to impact the lives of many people. And that's only possible through the power of God and by the faith of the people that give. So with that being said, here at New Hope Church, we have four different ways to give. One is by mailing it to 840 Kupulau Road. The second is online through our website. We also have an app and uh, we have a text to give where you can text that number right there on the screen. And it'll, um, and it'll help you set up an account to give. And with that being said, let's bow our head. Let's bow our heads and let's pray over the offering. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray and I thank you so much for being a God that is above our circumstances. For being a God that is great and powerful. So I just pray over this offering and the hearts of the givers. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Christian. Well, this morning we get to continue in our series. And we've been talking about being bridge builders and how we can be the people that God uses so that we can connect with other people. So we're going to ask Pastor Marsha to come up as she shares the word of God. Could you welcome with me Pastor Marsha Krieger as she shares? And welcome to you. I'm so glad that you're able to join us this morning online. I'm so excited about what God is doing. Now, I just wanted to share with you, like, if you were to drive by my house at any time during election season, you would notice that we have two mayoral signs up in our yard. And they're not the same guy. There's two different people. And it's not because we can't make up our mind. It's because there's uh, several of us in the house, and we actually can make up our mind, and they're for different people. At the same time, during football season, our house is the same way. On our truck or in the um, house where we put things, you'll see either Niners um, stuff or you'll see Packers stuff. Or if my grandson sneaks in, we've got Seahawks stuff. We're so different that even in one of our staff meetings, Pastor Sheldon looked at my husband and I, and he said, you guys are like polar opposites. And that's so true. But we still have a very strong marriage. And having different opinions and likes doesn't mean that we can't get along. What it does mean is that we need to learn how to bridge the gap between, between us and to find common ground. Now, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament letters, had to learn how to bridge those gaps. He had to learn how to get along with people that he didn't agree with. Paul's Jewish name is Saul. And before he became one of the champions of the Christian church, he was one of its biggest persecutors. The book of Acts is written by a physician named Luke. And he took it upon himself to write a historical account of the early church to his friend Theophilus. Now, in his account, he recorded Paul's defense and explanation for his ministry. And this is what he says after one of his arrests. He's speaking to a crowd of people, and he says this. He says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel, and I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Now, Paul was an enthusiastic member of the Pharisees, one of the stricter Jewish sects. The word Pharisee actually means separated one or separatist. 
And although they have a bad rap now, in Jesus' time, they were known for their strict adherence to Jewish traditions and religious practices. They interpreted scriptures literally and were committed to strictly following Jewish traditions and religious practices. Paul had devoted his life and separated himself to the rigorous observances of the Old Testament law, taught and practiced by the Pharisees. Not only that, but he was a member of the sect. He had studied and was thoroughly trained under the famous and highly respected rabbi Gamaliel. And when Paul mentioned that he studied under Gamaliel, he wasn't just off the cuff mentioning who his teacher was. He was actually name dropping. See, in those days, to be able to say, I studied under Gamaliel, was just as impressive as if we were to say today, well, I studied under Billy Graham. So Paul goes on to explain. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So Paul sincerely believed he was carrying out the will of God as he persecuted the early church. And in his mind and in his zealousness, he felt he was doing God a favor, stomping out what he felt was a perversion of the Jewish faith. And Paul was convinced that only the Jewish people worshiped the one true God. So in his book, Paul, a biography, former bishop, university chair, and author N.T. Wright wrote about Paul's response to the growth of the young church. And this is what he wrote. The scriptural models were clear. Torah and temple, the one God himself, were under attack from this new movement. And with his Bible in his head, zeal in his heart, and official documents of authority from the chief priests in his bag, young Saul set off in the firm hope that he too would be recognized as a true covenant member. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. See, Paul was zealous in his faith in God and in protecting the faith that he had learned as a boy. And though Paul set out to destroy the fledgling church, he actually became one of his biggest proponents. So Paul left for Damascus with a fistful of letters, granting him permission to eradicate this new movement of believers, but he ended up being one of the most prolific letter writers to grow and encourage this movement that he was um, attacking. Now, what happened? How did Paul shift from persecutor to promoter? Well, he had a life-changing encounter with Jesus. And let's continue reading what Paul said about his ministry. He says, about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Now, on his way 
to accomplish what he believed to be a divine assignment to protect the faith, Paul encountered Jesus. And Jesus asked a tough question. Why are you persecuting me? Now, as a side note, Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He said, why are you persecuting me? Paul's actions against the church were actions against Jesus. And any time that I grumble, complain, gossip, or mock another believer, I also gossip, grumble, complain, attack, and mock Jesus. So let's let that sink in for a moment. Why are you persecuting me? Now Paul heard a voice challenging him, but the people with him did not understand the voice. So picture this with me, okay? So he's traveling to Damascus to annihilate this church, and the people traveling with him are just as zealous as he was about what he was doing. And they would have been just as convinced with as Paul that this upstart new religion needed to be stopped and it needed to be stopped now. It needed to be annihilated before it had a chance to grow. And when they didn't understand the voice or see anything, they could very well have tried to explain it away. To them, it could have been thunder. It could have been lightning. It, that would have explained the loud noise, the voice. It would have explained why Paul was blind. And this encounter left Paul with a choice. He could go on to Damascus and wait just as Jesus said. Or he could continue on with his way, his thoughts, and his plans. After all, he was fulfilling his religious duty according to the Pharisaical sect that he belonged to. And we all know what Paul chose. He moved into his encounter with Jesus, and he chose to be changed by that encounter. Paul shifted from being a chief persecutor of the church to being one of the staunchest defenders and church planters. And like Paul, we can shift the way we relate to people and become a connector if we'll do three things. So if you're taking notes, you can look to the side of your, um, the screen where you are and the replace for notes, and you can fill this in. It's have a life-changing encounter with Jesus. See, Paul had history, and he had God's faithfulness on his side. Like he said, before he became a follower of Christ, Paul was a prime example of a righteous Jew. He came from a God-fearing family. He was a Pharisee just like his father. He trained under Gamaliel, who was a very respected teacher. Under his training, he knew the history of God's personal involvement, warnings, continuous rescue, and promises to the Jewish people. His Jewish credentials included heritage, discipline, and zeal. Yet, when Jesus spoke to him on his way to Damascus, he stopped. Luke also wrote about Paul's encounter with Jesus. And he reported that after Jesus spoke to Paul, that Paul went on to Damascus and waited. And while he was waiting, a man named Ananias was sent by God to visit him and to pray that he would receive back his sight. And after he was able to see again, Paul continued to stay in Damascus. And Luke wrote, After taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. 
See, after his encounter with Jesus, the whole trajectory of Paul's life changed. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees on his way to protect his religion and his God. He was going to make a name for himself alongside all the other heroes of the Jewish faith. But it all changed with a flash of light and a voice from heaven. Paul would later say about everything that he achieved as a Pharisee. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. According to Paul, everything he knew and held dear was nothing compared to knowing Jesus. Now, Paul would have been alive the same time that Jesus was. And he would have heard about this prophet Jesus who was shaking up the Roman world and eventually was crucified. And if he were a Pharisee, he actually would have been um, one of those Pharisees who probably cast a vote for Jesus' crucifixion. And because he was a Pharisee, he also would have known very well the Shema, which is considered by the Jewish people to be the most important part of a prayer service. And because it was a religious commandment, he would have prayed this prayer twice a day. Everything about Jesus would have screamed against Paul's belief in the absolute truth of the words of the Shema. O hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And as a Pharisee, Paul would have been threatened by Jesus' claim to be one with the Father. And yet, because of his encounter with Jesus, Paul, Paul was forced to revisit everything he believed and bring them into alignment with everything that Jesus is. Now I wonder, can we make the same choice that Paul made? See, for Paul, the issue was his faith in the words of the Torah, the history of God's involvement with the jo Jewish people and his promises. For, um, these were huge convictions for Paul to need to shift. And I wonder, for those of us who call Jesus our Lord, for those of us who've given our lives to him, have we or can we make the same type of shifts that Paul made? See, if I'm going to connect with someone that I have differing opinions with, what ideas and opinions do I need to revisit? Where do I need to measure the value of their soul and Jesus' deep love for them against the weight of my own opinion? So in light of Paul's decision, let me ask you a couple of questions. Does your being a Christian, a follower of Christ, inform your politics? Or does your politics inform your faith? Do you find yourself wondering how someone can be a member of a certain political party and still think they are a Christian? Do you find yourself judging someone for wearing or not wearing a mask? Are you frustrated or angry at people for not demanding their rights to gather as free people? Can you have a civil conversation with someone who disagrees with you on the value of life? Do you find yourself blocking people on social media or mocking their opinions because they don't match yours? 
Can you still love those who disagree with you? Is what you believe more important than the soul of the person who disagrees with you? See, when our opinions prevent us from understanding, accepting, or connecting with people, then we need to go back to Jesus. We need to spend some serious time with him. And then we need to ask him to challenge us in the same way that he challenged Paul. And I'm sure that it was eye-opening for Paul to have Jesus ask him, why are you persecuting me? And we may need to allow Jesus to ask us the same question. Now, the goal of the questions that I just asked isn't to condemn us, but it's to help us to go to Jesus and allow him full access to our hearts. Because when we do that, when we're able to come to Jesus and we allow him to genuinely change our heart, then we can move on to the next thing to becoming a connector. And that's this. Seek to connect more than be correct. Now, in the first century, as Paul and the disciples spread out and the new church was growing, there wasn't a separate Christian and Jewish church. The new movement was birthed within the Jewish religion, and the Jews were now seeing that God was bringing the Gentiles into the same salvation that they had experienced. The Gentile believers who before were separated from the Jewish people were now experiencing the same salvation and the same baptisms that they were experiencing. And some leaders came to Antioch where Paul was ministering. And in order to be part of what God was doing, they came and they wanted to partner with him. However, along with reaching out to the new Gentile believers, they began to teach that in order for these Gentile believers to be saved, that they needed to become like the Jewish people, including circumcision. But Paul and his followers strongly disagreed with that. But instead of arguing their point, they traveled to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and the disciples. And while in Jerusalem, they explained how God was working among the Gentiles and how the Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus. But while they were there, some people stood up even in that meeting and declared that these new Gentile believers, in order to be saved, had to become like the Jews. And during this discussion, James, who was the younger brother of Jesus, stood up and he pointed out that what was happening with the Gentiles had been foretold by the prophets. One Old Testament prophet, Amos, said, and um, that's not in your notes, so if you want to write it down, it's Amos 9, 11 through 12. And he said this, On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this thing. So in other words, what James was saying, that the fact that the Gentiles were coming into the Jewish faith should not have been unexpected. Their own prophets pointed to the day that the Gentiles would come to God. And then James said this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So basically, you had Jewish men who had grown up following Jewish laws and rituals, but who had experienced life-changing encounters with Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit, make a decision 
to embrace the new Gentile believers without the need for them to become Jewish and practice circumcision. James presented this as a way to connect with Gentiles while not requiring them to become Jewish believers, but at the same time. He provided a way for the Gentiles to connect with the Jewish believers by honoring their deeply held religious beliefs. And he continued, Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. These were deeply held tenets among the Jewish believers. And it's often what set them apart from the culture around them. And as the new movement was gaining traction among the believers, all the believers, Jewish and Gentile alike, were meeting house to house and worshiping in the temple. And by following these instructions, it provided a way for both the Jewish and the Gentile believers to manage their differences, yet still experience community in a way that would not have been possible. See, Peter and the rest of the apostles, Paul and his followers, they didn't have a template to work with. There wasn't any books on church growth. There wasn't any 10 easy steps. They had to hash everything out as they went along. And instead of arguing over who was right or over what Jewish law said, they chose to find a way to connect. They had to discern the most righteous, Christ-like way to connect people who disagreed on the same page. This was new to them. They had to uphold what Jesus did on the cross, but how would they represent the heart of Jesus to a watching world? And Paul said it this way to the church in Corinth. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. See, each time I read that scripture, I am amazed at Paul's heart. See, so remember, he grew up in this religious system that prided itself on being correct to the letter of the law correct. And yet, he had managed to shift his heart and his values in such a way that his opinions were not more important than those of those he was speaking with. A few years ago, and I can't even remember what we were having this discussion about, and it was a discussion so my husband and I were talking. We, had the, we were talking about this incident, and we were both at the same incident, and we both had memories coming from the different direction. And we were both holding fast to our memory. And neither one of us would budge because we remembered it right. And I remember at one point saying, you know what, I'm going to go out, I'm gonna, i got to hang clothes. So I'm outside, and I'm hanging the clothes, and I'm grumbling to God because I'm right. And I'm saying to God, I don't see why he can't see it. I clearly remember, and before I could finish, I distinctly, to this day, I can hear God's voice. Because when you talk about being brought up short and corrected, God very gently 
yet very firmly asked, why is your memory more valuable than Tom's? And to this day, I can hear God's voice. And I remember that question every time we go down that path. And then I've often reframed that question to fit other scenarios because the principle is always applicable. See, I like to think in pictures. And in pictures, this is what the principle looked like. This was my old way of thinking. Sorry, I'm going to try to write neatly, but... So my opinion was greater than Tom's or anyone else's. That was my opinion. And then God corrected me. So here's my new way of thinking. Sorry. The value someone places on their opinion is equal to mine. I had to understand that. Now here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that everyone's opinion is correct. What I am saying is that when we talk with others, we need to remember that they hold their opinion just as close to their hearts as we're holding ours. And when we can start from that premise, when we can be willing to listen without condemning, when we can carefully and respectfully share our thoughts and opinions, then we can seek common ground. See, it's not always about being right. It's about the relationship. And my opinion should never trump the value of someone's soul. I guarantee you, when we get to heaven, all our opinions will be checked at the gate. And only the people that we've impacted, that we've loved, and that we've invited to the kingdom will be there. So I'm going to ask you a tough question. When you strongly disagree with someone, so much so that your relationship is being hurt, damaged, or broken, why is your opinion more important than theirs? And what are you do, willing to do to salvage that relationship? See, I think that as Paul grew in his relationship with Jesus, his values shifted. And rather than being right, he valued the soul of the people he was speaking with. And it was so important to him that they have a relationship with Jesus that he started the conversation with them by giving validity to their assumptions. So to him, their salvation trumped his being right. So much so that he's willing to connect with them where they are. And that's the third point. Connect where they are. So you've heard us talk the last few weeks about this summer digital experience. 
So what I did is I, I had my younger granddaughters over, and then my sister-in-law came over with her younger granddaughter, and we did the experience, and it was a lot of fun. And I'm going to give kudos to those guys who put it on, because, man, well done. It was creative. It was well-planned. It was fun. And if you've got youth, register them. But I learned something during one of the seminars. So what I noticed during the seminars, it was an art seminar, and... Um, so my one niece, she's about nine, and then my one granddaughter who was doing it was five. And the person who was giving the seminar, it was art, was giving instructions. And she's talking about tracing the circle because you're going to make planets and all that. And what I noticed that she did, even though she was an artist and she could have just and had it done, she said a couple of things. She started with, okay, I've been doing this for a while, so if I go too fast, let me know. I'm going to try to slow it down, but if I go too fast, let me know. And if you need anything else, let me know. And she said that several times during the um, breakout. And then she's giving instructions. The kids are trying to follow along. And then some of the kids would post in the chat, you're going too fast, you're going too fast. And then her host would say, the kids are saying you're going too fast. And she would stop and she'd say, okay, I'm going to slow it down. Here's what we need to do. And she'd repeat it again. And she kept doing that throughout the whole seminar until all the kids were done. And what I appreciated was that she didn't just give the instructions, hey, this is what you need to do, A, B, C, D, E, and then wait and let them do it. She walked along with them, and a couple times she had to go back to where they were to help bring them along. And when I was watching that, I realized that's exactly what Jesus did for us. See, in... The very beginning, God created the world and everything that's in it. He created space. He created time. He created the sun, the moon, the stars, plants, everything. God created. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. See, we're created in God's image. Now, obviously, if we look around, we, don't, we all look different. We don't physically look like him. Someone described being made in the likeness of God this way. We are made in his likeness in that we have some of the same attributes that God has. For example, God is rational, and so are we. God can love, and so can we. God can hate, so can we. And because we are made in God's image, we are able to have compassion, mercy, grace, fellowship, friendship, and so on. However, beginning in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, and moving forward, man has consistently marred the image of God within ourselves. In some respects, we have made reason of God to be worshipped. News is no longer news. Now it's information wrapped up in someone's opinion. We justify and explain our views and opinions and use our own explanations and justification to disregard and belittle someone else's opposing, opposing opinion. We've taken our ability to love, and in some cases, we've turned that into control, lust, and license. 
and we look at the headlines and scroll through social media, we can dis, um, discover just how rampant hate is. And though God's, remit, though God's image is disfigured in us, we are not without hope. In a letter to the church in Philippi, Paul wrote, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used as his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being formed in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to be, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now catch this. At the beginning of our existence, God created mankind in his image. We bore many of his characteristics and his traits. And through the years, we have readjusted, marred, and moved away from God's image in us. But God loves us. He loves us so much that one of Jesus' disciples wrote, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And catch this. His Son, Jesus, loves us so much that even though we were originally created in the image of God, Jesus gave up his rights as God, took on human likeness, and was found in the appearance of a man, all to restore us to a righteous relationship with his Father. See, Jesus is the ultimate connector. He met us where we're at in order to bring us to the Father. And he didn't wait for us to become good enough for the kingdom of God. He made us right, right where we are, in order for us to be with the Father. In a letter to the Galatian church, Paul reminded them that being correct or following the law wasn't going to accomplish what they wanted. They needed to give up being correct and instead express their faith through love. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. So he's saying there's no benefit in following the law. But what is important is faith expressing itself in love. And as we close, that's what I want to leave you with. Our opinions won't change the world. Jesus changes the world. And we, his children, his creation, are called to be connectors. We are the ones who need to connect people with the hope that God brings. And as we close, I want to share this from Bob Goff's devotional, Live in grace, walk in love. And he's talking about passion. And Jim, you can, okay. He wrote, I think faith works the same way. It's not just a system of doctrines and behaviors and belief. It's about what we do with the things we believe. People will figure out what we believe when they see how we live. When we actively care for people who have been handed a difficult life, we show people that love isn't just talk. When we bring peace to heated debates, our truest beliefs about the value and the dignity of other people shine through. And when we choose to risk a new relationship or a new business, we acknowledge 
that God is in charge of the outcome, not us. God's in charge of the outcome. We simply need to be willing to connect. We're living in unprecedented times, but we're the church. We're the body of Christ. And while we may be surrounded by chaos, God has called us to connect with him and with each other and with the world around us. So my challenge for you as we go forward is that each time you find yourself in a conversation or on social media or any situation where you have different views, just pause before you respond. Say a quick prayer and ask God, how do I respond in a way that values the very soul of this person that I'm responding to? See, we're called to be connectors. And to do that, we have to value people's souls over our own opinions. Would you bow your heads? And we're going to pray, okay? So Jesus, ultimately, you're the bridge between your Father and mankind, and we're grateful for that. Please show us how to connect with others by valuing their soul and prioritizing their salvation over our own thoughts and opinions. And as we go about our lives, please remind us that connecting with others is far more important than being right. Jesus, you are the hope of the world. Please never let us lose sight of that. And may we always make room for your light. May we always shine your hope. We pray this on the very, very precious name of Jesus. Amen. So that's it. I want to encourage you. Go be a connector, bring peace, and bring hope.